So I'm gonna get started. Again, um, all of these materials here um, are um, not um, uh, connected to any financial or other groups. Um, they are based on the literature and uh, the evidence base and the practice base. Um, and we um, hope you will engage with us on these. So today we are gonna focus on the services and supports that promote uh, recovery in individuals with serious mental health conditions. We're gonna talk about the key services that promote independence in both roles and environments. What we're also gonna talk about um, that we, I think all of you know very well too, is the importance of integrating services across settings. This is something I've been in the field for a long time. And this is something that we've been working really hard um, to push both from, you know, at the high levels of the Center for Mental Health and Medicaid Services to fund is this integration of, of services across settings, particularly for people who are really uh, disabled by mental illness and substance abuse uh, conditions. Um, so we'll be talking about that today along with why we need to be trying to implement evidence-based practices. So what we hope at the end of this uh, module you'll be able to do is talk about the evidence base for recovery. Um, that can be very helpful, particularly even from an emotional perspective when we're working with people who are really not well, uh, remembering the data about recovery, um, being able to describe the array of services that promote independence, um, and why integrating services is critical to recovery, and then what um, the importance of evidence-based recovery. So here are the three areas that we're gonna discuss in the next hour, the evidence-based for recovery, services that promote independence and integration across settings, and then talking about evidence-based practices, setting that up. I think next week, I'm gonna be sending out a case study uh, with next week's slides um, and hope that folks will have a chance to take a look at it and we'll be discussing that. Um, but we'll set that up today and I'd like to hear a little bit from you today as well before we do that. So I wanted to start with um, just kind of the history of mental health services because I think it's important to take a look back as we try to move forward um, and why we are where we are now. Um, and there have been several sort of uh, mental health historians who have helped describe um, what our mental health treatments system has been like in the United States. And really for over a hundred years, we, um, we had what was known as institutionalization, where people were sent away um, to uh, lunatic asylums, to hospital settings, many of them out away in the country. When they first started, they started off as being places that really promoted healing, right? People were out gardening, they were out in nature, but as they became more and more crowded, they became more and more um, warehousing of people who were not receiving the care that they needed, nor did they, nor get the care that they deserved. In the 1960s, um, with uh, in legislation that was um, signed by President John F. Kennedy, really began what we uh, call the era of deinstitutionalization. This idea that we needed to help get people out of these hospitals that had really become, you know, warehouses uh, where people were very dehumanized, treated horribly. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of 
recently um, projects where people are going to the sites of these old hospitals and finding um, these cemeteries of patients who are buried with no grave markers, um, sort of the ultimate uh, dehumanization uh, event and um, trying to restore those as proper resting places for people. And um, what happened in deinstitutionalization is that, you know, people were uh, sent home from these hospitals uh, to ill-prepared communities. And um, what has followed since then, really, um, the, the principle of it was important, but the actual implementation of it failed. In, 19, in the era of uh, 1970s, we call that the era of the community support services. People realized, it, uh, realized that the community needed to be uh, infused with services to help people who are living with serious mental illnesses and to help their families. Um, and so we, money was allocated to states to allocate to their communities to do this kind of work. It actually didn't work that well. Um, and, you know, we had uh, people having to travel to, you know, one side of the city to see a doctor and the other side to go to, you know, a, a clubhouse or a place where they could um, get food. And so they were um, having to navigate all of these services that were not connected. Um, some were better funded than others. Um, that many untrained people in those uh, working in those services who uh, were were struggling to meet people's needs. And then in 19, the 1980s, we call the decade of the brain. And that is because in the 1980s, the new medications for people who live with very serious mental illnesses, the atypical antipsychotics were introduced. And for many people, it really changed their lives. Um, for people who were really plagued by, um, you know, schizophrenia disorders and affective disorders that uh, produced symptoms that so interfered with their functioning, when they got on these first atypicals, they, it was kind of like they were awakened um, and coming back. What we've learned since then, of course, is that many of those atypicals cause so many um, different health problems like the early emergence of diabetes and hypertension and uh, cardiovascular and cerebrovascular diseases for people. But it did reduce for many people some of those really difficult symptoms. And it became all about the pill in the 1980s. And we saw a lot of attention and funding for research go to medication and not to community services which all of you know are so critical to help people. <clears throat> so the funding always seems to follow um, what is um, sort of the theme of the decade. And then in the 1990s was the first time we really began to hear about professionals talking about recovery. And I actually worked for Bill Anthony. He was the director of my center for 27 years. And he was one of the first psychologists in the nation to be talking with, at the time they were called consumers or consumer survivors, talking to them about recovery and looking at the research that had been done on recovery. And there became this movement within the federal mental health um, sector as well within states that we needed to be recovery oriented. 
that no matter where we came into the system, were we prescribing, were we doing case management, were we doing housing, employment, whatever we're doing, whatever we're doing should be promoting the recovery of people who live with serious mental illnesses. And before that, it was really all about just treating the illness. We had forgotten about the person. Um, then the decade of the 2000s, it became the decade of the person because we began to hear more and more about people who were actually um, coming out about being a person living with a serious mental health condition, not just people who were really disabled, um, who were coming out, and but also people who had who'd felt such great shame and stigma and discrimination. And we began to realize that much of what we need to do in our system of care has to be whole person centered. The decade of, of health and wealth, uh, we like to talk about that as, uh, you know, sort of this idea that people with serious mental illnesses experience so many serious health conditions that they die 25 years earlier than any um, other uh, subgroup of, of people in the United States. They have the greatest health inequity of any group in the United States, any group, right? And it's of course related to wealth. The poorer people are, the less health they have. Um, and Lisa spoke about that uh, last week, um, that the association is so strong and it became very, very clear in all the data um, that we um, have gathered in the last 10 years. And this current decade that we're in is the decade of equity. I think um, we've had a reckoning where we, within, within uh, mental health, um, that we have not done a good job in serving people um, of color, as serving people of different genders and sexual identities, um, and that we, we need to do better. Um, and so hopefully the money will follow um, in these issues um, so that, that services um, can be developed um, and services can be accessed and um, equitable and culturally inclusive services um, can be implemented because we have a long way to go. So that's kind of a, an overview of the uh, history of mental health services. And from that flows, um, you know, why we do what we do the way we do it. So our service context has always been a medical model, right? Um, it's always been aimed at preventing hospitalization. It's always been aimed at preventing relapse. It's always been aimed at ensuring treatment adherence and compliance. Remember, I'm gonna talk about that word uh, compliance, right? Because that, that speaks to a power differential that is very non-recovery oriented. And it's always been um, aimed at maintenance is the highest goal. And when you look at those four goals of the medical model, right? We don't want you in the hospital. Why? Because it costs a lot of money. We don't want you to relapse because then you'll go in the hospital and it costs a lot of money. We want to make sure you stay compliant with the treatment we're prescribing you because it will prevent relapse and prevent hospitalization. And we want you just to maintain, stay where you are, stability. It's all about stability. But when we talk like that to people, we take the person out of the, out of the equation. We take out their right to live a life, um, to have community, to have family and friends and a job, 
and a life full of purpose and meaning. This is a slide that one of my colleagues who is a, a woman in recovery um, wrote uh, that she felt um, she's now in her 60s and um, has experienced so many um, challenges throughout her life, um, including homelessness and employment, major health conditions. Um, and she said, I you told me to listen, to comply, to accept my illness and understand I have no insight and that my brain is broken. And I learned. And that sense of sort of learned helplessness that comes when the messaging is over and over and over that you are less than, I know what's best for you. I'm in charge of you. Let me tell you what you're going to do. That we contribute as a system of care to what we see in the people that we serve. And that's so just an important place for us to sit in for a moment, because for me, what that does is it evokes um, that this person, I think as a society, we tend to see mental illness and substance abuse and homelessness as, as moral failures, right? That we, we have a certain disregard and disgust for people who are in that place. Um, and, you know, I'm going to say it that, and I say this all the time, no one was born raising their hand saying, I can't wait to develop bipolar illness and, and be a drug addict and live on the streets, right? No one has that goal. It happens. Um, and, and our model of care has been such that we, we, we play into that um, by the way we've treated people historically. So along comes this idea of recovery. And while it's new to the mental health system, relatively new, 30, 35 years, it's not new to the people who've been living with mental illnesses. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But recovery is defined as this deeply personal, unique process of changing one's attitudes, one's values, feelings, goals, skills, and roles. It is a way of living not just a successful life, a contributing life, but a satisfying life, a happy, hopeful life, even with the limitations caused by the illness. And as my boss defined it in 1993, recovery involves the development of new meaning and purpose in one's life as one grows beyond the catastrophic effects of mental illness. Think about the catastrophic effects of mental illness. If you or someone you love or have loved has lived with a mental illness, you know that the effects radiate out. It's not just within the person, it's within their family, within their community. We all feel the effects. You know, I, I have a, a family member who has both a serious mental illness and a substance use issue. And there were three children involved in that family who have been dramatically impacted by that experience of growing up in chaos. Um, so it continues on generationally, right? And so getting people to a place where they can begin to recover and develop new meaning and purpose um, is a way of helping people to live a hopeful, satisfying and contributing life. Recovery also is not just personal, right? It's a paradigm shift for our system of care, 
one that we've been in for some time. Um, I've gotten a little more cynical about it. Uh, in, in some places do a great job with it. Other people just put the words up on posters in their offices and in the buildings. Um, but it is a process of transforming our mental health system of care. And, and if I look back, um, if I look down this tunnel that I've come through since I've started working in this field in 1983, if I think about how much has changed, I do feel hopeful. Um, it's just slower than, than, of course, I want it, I want it to be. Um, but it is this idea of recovery is the goal of the work we all do in our work with people with serious mental illnesses, no matter what it is that we do or where we do it or how we do it. It's promoting their recovery. We don't do recovery. We support recovery. Whether we're doctor, nurse, caseworker, social worker, uh, we're a benefit payee, um, a housing specialist, an employment specialist, we do the work of supporting their recovery. So, you know, and the interesting thing about recovery is that um, the people who live with serious mental illnesses have been a pretty um, vocal group for a long time. Starting in the 70s, they began protesting their treatment across the United States. Um, and they used to say, I am the evidence, right? Here I am. I am the evidence that people do get better. And they were completely, completely dismissed um, as being you know, irrelevant. Um, their words had no meaning, no power in the system of care. But what did have, have meaning was data. And there have been 10 international studies across the world that have refuted the um, one-third, one-third, one-third rule of schizophrenia disorders. Some of you may have been trained um, and educated with this information that when people are diagnosed with serious mental illnesses, partic particularly schizophrenia disorders, of which there are many, that a third get better, a third stay the same, and a third deteriorate. That is not, that is not a fact. What in, is in fact is that two thirds of people actually get better and they get better despite the system of care. And so that's an important piece of information to remember because what that does for me as a provider of people who are really uh, living with serious mental illnesses is it gives me a lot of hope that I can't predict who walks in my door, whether or not they will get better or not get better. And so that actually helps me feel hopeful for them. The fact that I can't by diagnosis alone make that prediction. And there's more research that shows that diagnosis and the time duration of illness are not strong predictors of outcome. So we used to say, oh, schizophrenia disorders, no hope at all, right? Uh, they're done for. You shouldn't, you know, give up. You shouldn't work. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do anything but sit still and be stable. And if they had been ill for quite some time, then even, that was even a, a bigger predictor of outcome. But the data doesn't support that. The other data that's really important to understand is that diagnosis and symptoms do not predict work or social outcomes, right? So people can have some pretty 
uncomfortable, distressing symptoms. And we look at that as someone not living with those symptoms and think, oh my God, they'll never be able to work. They're never going to be able to make it independently live on their own, you know, find a, a group, a, a community. The data doesn't support that. So what does that support? It supports that, that the services that we provide, these multiple level, multi-pronged interventions when combined and integrated do work and help people feel better, function better and live better lives. We also know that when we integrate mental illness treatment and substance use treatment, we see better outcomes for the person. So, you know, I, I, we do a lot of work with young adults, you know, at the beginning of their illness experience. And we have so many parents who come in with students, um, high school students, middle school students, um, young adults who don't finish school. And they come to us and they say, you know, they are, uh, they're, they're struggling with a drug addiction and they want them to go to drug addiction treatment. And we have to push very hard and say, look, they're also living with a mental illness. Um, there's a great deal of shame around mental illness still in families. They would rather send their young person to a substance use treatment center than a place where they can get both of those services integrated. But we know that when we start with integration of those services, people do better um, down the road. We also know that our brains, right, we're all learning this, is that um, our brains are more plastic than we thought. And there are many pathways to recovery and improvement. It doesn't have to be just through um, psychotropic medications and therapy. It can be through work. It can be through relationships. It can be through alternative um, health pathways. Um, people's brains respond in different ways. It's not a one size fits all. And we also know um, that the evidence for recovery that has integrated this idea that the whole experience of mental illness is a form of profound trauma and adversity and distress. And coming at it through a trauma-informed lens is super critical, right? And that this, when we can, we can look at what people have been through just to get to our door, just to get to a place where they can start to have a relationship with us, or if we're going out to them in the community, that if we come to that place and we sit in the muck with them and see what they've experienced through that trauma lens, that that can be very, very healing for people um, to start at that point of empathy. So there is a great deal of evidence that recovery does happen. And we can sometimes lose sight of it because we're working with people who are facing such um, extreme adversity. I wanna just comment on a couple of the things that people have said. The stigma for an environmental press is the hardest from you. Uh, yes, the stigma. Um, the, and the discrimination and prejudice that comes out um, is just, is really, really difficult. And it, it is perpetuated day after day after day. Um, Larry Davison is a um, researcher at Yale University who is a person in recovery. Um, and he uh, does, does this whole correction of seven myths um, that I think is really important for us to uh, spend a little bit of time on today. 
There's the myth that we just talked about that a person with any mental illness will never recovery, will never recover, I'm sorry. And that rehab and recovery can only occur after stabilization. We know that there's widening, widening heterogeneity within diagnoses and recovery. So we used to say, again, Lisa was talking about language last week, you know, oh, um, she lives with bipolar or she is bipolar or she is, um, she, she has a personality disorder. She's crazy. She's a schizophrenic. What that does when we narrow it down to one label, right, then that label becomes so prejudicial and we keep all of our negative perceptions and biases and judgments onto that one level label. Um, that interferes with people's ability to recover because we can't be free of our biases in our role um, in helping people recover. Um, and we know that people who, even people who live with a form or any kind of form of schizophrenia can recover um, and live a life that is satisfying and, and successful and independent, even when um, people had written them off. Um, there, we know that people can do that. We also know that recovery and rehabilitation can begin on day one. And this is this whole practice of beginning on day one has started to seep into um, the early psychosis treatment um, that is happening across the country for young adults, right? When, when people um, end up having a first break um, and they get to a, a a treatment uh, facility or center that um, has, supports this idea, they begin talking about recovery um, in that very moment. They begin talking about rehabilitation in that very moment. So we know that that is beginning to seep into our service system. And then this idea that psychotherapy is not really useful for serious mental illness. And we know that that's not true. We know that supportive psychotherapy is really helpful for people in integrating the experience of their mental illness and helping them to continue to uh, develop as adults. I had a clinical supervisor in graduate school who used to talk about how she felt um, people with serious mental illnesses were developmentally delayed. And this was back in the eighties, right? Is that when they became ill with their mental illness or with their substance use issue when they were 16 or 17, their adult, adult development stopped. They didn't work those first jobs. They didn't finish their education. Um, they, they never moved out of their family home or then they got kicked out of their family home. They never had the kinds of experiences that help us learn and grow as adults. So supportive psychotherapy is a place where that can begin to happen, um, where people can be coached um, to, to begin to take those kind of positive risks of trying out those new, new jobs, those, those entry-level positions that are gonna help them build the skills of living in different types of housing to, to promote independence. It can all begin with supportive psychotherapy. Um, so that is a fallacy that it's not helpful. The other myth is that medications are a necessity for recovery from mental illnesses. And there's really no data supporting this statement. You know, if you think about big pharma, there's, there's a lot of it out there. There's a lot of it out there for any kind of condition without 
um, that's not a mental illness. And what we've learned is that there are pros and cons to psychiatric medications, and it's highly, highly individualized. I think I mentioned last week that uh, we are very, in particular at my center, we are very, uh, we call ourselves Switzerland when it comes to medications, because we believe that, um, you know, it, we don't really know um, who is going to um, walk through our door and say, I'm on meds or I'm not on meds. And we're not going to let that stand in the way of their recovery by taking a stance. Um, and if people are, are conflicted, we, we do informed decision-making around around this topic with them. Um, because there are a lot of cons to the medications as well. You know, when you develop um, all sorts of health conditions that then create, you know, comorbid conditions that promote an early death, that can scare a lot of people. Um, and then how do we coach people who wanna take medications but can't get access to ones that they need? Um, so it's not a necessity, it's, a, it's an individualized choice. Um, people with mental illnesses can only work in low-level jobs. Again, this is a myth. Um, you may have heard of the five Fs, and I can um, see if I can recall them all. But when I started work in the 80s, and we started working with people trying to help people who had just been let out of state hospitals, who had been in the hospitals for 20 years or more, try to get work, it was only these types of jobs that we were looking for food-related jobs, flower-related jobs, fetching-related jobs, filing-related jobs, and filth-related jobs. So the five Fs, right? And those were menial, low-level jobs um, that people were being placed in without any choice. Um, and for many people, it didn't work, right? They had no training. They didn't have good supervision. It probably didn't even match what they wanted to do. Um, but what we've learned from all those experiences is that work is therapeutic. Um, we know that for many people, work is like medicine. It gives them a valued role in our society. Think about yourselves. When you meet people for the first time, the first thing they ask you is, what do you do? Right? And you tell them what you do for a living. So it's so valued in our society and it's just as valued for people with mental illnesses. And now we know that many people with mental illnesses work in a range of careers. The other myth is that families are the agents of mental illness, that it comes from families. Um, and while we know that families, um, that there are you know, sort of biological generations of mental illnesses that run through families, um, we want to take a biopsychosocial view of the person's experience, right? And we also know that families can be supportive and they often need education and coaching. So, um, you know, they're not, they're not all bad and they're not always all good. Um, and so taking that whole person view is really critical. So clinical principles of recovery-oriented services um, just as you're all, many of you, I'm sure are working directly with people. When we're talking about recovery, we're talking about giving people autonomy and working with them as mutual partners, not taking a paternalistic view of what's best for them and that we know what's best for them. We may see, you know, all of the challenges that are going to come down 
that person's path if they do X, Y, or Z. But we don't want to tell them what to do. We want to try to partner with them in a way that they can hear um, what we are observing. Um, we want to talk about risk, success, and failure rather than about compliance, coercion, and maintenance. Um, you know, that when people are choosing to, um, you know, maybe take themselves off medications that seem to be working, it's, we're talking about risk-taking with them. We're talking about the pros and cons of that. Um, we're talking about failures as opportunities for growth. Um, how can we learn from this? Um, rather than having people stay still and main, maintain in one place without any hope. Um, another thing that we see a lot in, in people who begin to recover is they begin to disagree with us. Um, when they begin to find their voice, right? They begin to say, I don't want to do that. And you can't tell me what to do. And if I want to have someone in my, you know, my halfway house room at two in the morning, I'm going to do that. And um, we tend to uh, pathologize that and label that. Um, and it really is part of their growth when people begin to find their voice. And so what we want to do is work towards shared decision-making. Maybe this is a sign that you're ready to be living on your own because we, this house does have rules. Um, and if you feel like those rules don't work for you anymore, maybe it's a sign you're ready. Um, and having that kind of conversation rather than pathologizing disagreement. And then this idea of readiness to change. Um, instead of using our perception of someone's motivation to decide whether or not they're going to get services, using um, readiness to change, this idea of working with the person to help develop their motivation um, is where we want to go in recovery-oriented services. And then finally, I like to say dependence is not a dirty word. People need long-term support. And that's it's just a fact in, in people the experience of serious mental illness. You know, we don't ask people who are physically disabled to give up their wheelchairs after six months. We don't say to them, you have 90 days, you know, to get it together. But we do that in the mental health world, right? And so while people with physical disabilities rely on things like wheelchairs and walkers and, you know, ramps, people with mental illness depend upon people. And we are their long-term supports. And so having programs and services that people can reconnect with um, is often what can make a difference for people in their recovery. So recovery is the person's experience and we support recovery. These are the different types of services that are considered essential in the recovery paradigm of care, right? So there's treatment, there's rehabilitation, supported education, supported employment, supported housing, case management, wellness, peer support, rights protection, and crisis intervention. Mental health services should have the goal of helping people achieve their personal recovery goals. So someone may say to you, I just want to have a safe place to live. I want to have friends. I want to have someone to you know, I want to, I want to have a job or I want to finish my high school education, or I just want to be healthy, right? We want to support those goals. Usually once someone achieves one goal, they're ready to move on to the next one, you know, so helping people understand 
recovery is kind of no wrong door. We want people to enter into our services. So um, ma making sure they understand that we will support their goal is part of the message of recovery. So these are the services that promote independence, supported housing, peer support, employment, education, wellness management, case management, and community participation. All very important, all have an evidence base. Okay, supported housing, right? This is just, many of you are working in this field. We know this, that everyone deserves a safe and decent place to live. That's like the bottom principle. We also know from the research that a home helps people with serious mental illnesses and chronic health conditions and trauma and addictions to actually enter into treatment and on a path to recovery. It always used to be, and maybe it still is in many places that we would say to people, you have to be sober before you can get any services. And there's been some really great research done in the last 30 years that showed, no, that doesn't need to be the case. If we can get them inside first, we can then actually get them to treatment. So there's four things that have come out of this research is that we know that supportive housing helps people with all types of disabilities live um, stably in the community. That's a typo there, I apologize. Um, people with disabilities and supporting housing reduce their use of costly systems, especially the emergency healthcare and correction systems. So we get them into some homes, they stop ending up in our jails and in our ERs. We also know that having supportive housing can help people get the health care they need and actually can improve their health. Um, Lisa, who's not here today, but will be back, has done a lot of this research herself in the last decade. We also know that people in other groups, including seniors, who are trying to stay in their community as they age, and that families who are trying to keep their children out of foster care also are benefiting from supportive housing. You know, now that we have more programs that are supporting um, people in recovery, and we, we really are looking at the continuum of care across the lifespan, right? We have parents with mental illness having children, and we're trying to support them as families to be healthy functioning families. Then we have the people that I've been serving since the 80s in my center who are now senior citizens right there. And so we're trying to support them to live well in their communities in their 70s and 80s after a long, hard life and living with many health conditions. So across the continuum of care, we know that having a home makes a huge difference. Peer support, right? There is so much evidence for this and, and um, it is so powerful for those of you who, who provide it uh, and who have experienced it. Um, it empowers people to make the best decisions for them and to strive towards their goals and their communities. Um, they are a essential component of our recovery focus system and they are, we need peers in every aspect of the care system to help people recover. The research shows that peer support have a transformative effect both on our individuals and our systems. This uh, research shows that peers improve quality of life for others. They improve engagement in the system and satisfaction with services and supports. 
They improve whole health, including chronic conditions like diabetes, decrease hospitalizations and inpatient days, and reduce the overall cost of services. So peer support is kind of a win, 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 win for everyone. Um, and there's still a lot of reluctance. You know, we're struggling now to support peers to be valued as equal colleagues, right? Um, they often are paid less. They often are seen now as a less than kind of uh, colleague in the system. Um, and so we are working hard in, in our center and in a lot of other centers to find ways to reduce that disparity. But we know that peer support services work. Supported employment, something is really important. We're gonna continue the next two weeks really talking, doing a deep dive into this. But supported employment helps people with mental illnesses choose get and keep competitive work in the community. What's key about supported employment, it's about competitive wages in integrated settings, okay? I was trained when we were still having people work in what we called sheltered workshops, where they went off and they did peace work away from the public, where they weren't in the same environment as people without mental illnesses. And we paid them nothing to just a few pennies a day kind of thing. Supported employment is, again, based on the premise that people with mental illnesses are people and they deserve to be treated as such. Supported employment provides the supports necessary to ensure their success in the workplace. We know that many people with mental illnesses can often choose and often get work one way or the other, but they really struggle to keep their jobs. Um, and so this idea of supported employment, providing the supports necessary to keep the work is where we need to roll up our sleeves and often do the hard work. Um, people with serious mental illnesses, you all know this, have many strengths, talents, and abilities that are often overlooked, including the ability and motivation to work. Um, this is where this idea of place, um, place people into work came into be. We, we would just say, oh, you know, uh, there's a job at the local McDonald's and we're going to put you in that job without asking whether or not that person, you know, had any interest in working in the food service industry or had any skills to deal with the public. Um, uh, so paying attention, support and employment is paying attention to what people want to do, what they have skills in, what their strengths are, um, as a way to, you know, kind of come full circle. If, if people are working in, in a place that taps into their strengths and their interests, we see higher success rates. We know that 70% of adults with serious mental illnesses desire work. What we know is that when people um, are provided supported um, employment services, that 60% of them can be successful at working, you know, but when they don't have supported employment services, we see that success rate drop dramatically to about 15 or 20%. Um, and we know that families also want their, their family member to find and keep a job as a top, top priority. So supported employment is key. Supported education is what we call a promising practice. There's data that supported education that we can help people finish 
get a GED or get some community college or vocational training or finish higher ed, that that promotes career development and that improves their long-term work opportunities. Supported education also follows this choose, get, keep model where we help people make choices about paths for education and training, get the appropriate education and training opportunities, and then keep their student status until they achieve their goals. Um, I, I run an adult education center at my Center for Psych Rehab, um, and we help people get their GEDs. We became a certification site for that for, for folks. Um, and we have staff who are helping people in their you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s get their GEDs. Um, that, was, that was disrupted because of their psychiatric illness. Wellness management um, is also an evidence-based practice. Um, some of you may know of illness management recovery, which is a intervention. It's a manualized intervention that teaches the person with a mental illness um, the skills, not just the knowledge, but the skills as well to cope with the aspects of their mental illness while going after their goals. Um, it uses psychoeducation, behavioral tailoring, relapse prevention training, and like a, a little bit of CBT to help um, folks manage their symptom management. Um, then there is um, whole health action management that was actually developed by um, a, a man called Larry Frick. Some of you may know, he's a very famous uh, mental health uh, consumer survivor who was institutionalized in the state of Georgia for many years. And now he um, has actually, he consults around the United States um, he helped develop whole health action management, which teaches people with serious mental illnesses the skills to better self-manage their chronic physical health conditions that have come as a consequence of their mental illness and addictions um, so that they can achieve whole health. Um, and a foundation of this whole piece, of, uh, it's called WAM for short, um, is peer support. Intensive case management, um, yeah, many of you probably know this evolved from what we called assertive community treatment. The idea is helping people stay in their communities and stay out of the hospital and improve their functioning. And we know that when we provide this sort of intensive case management for folks, um, that people improve their general functioning. We can help people get a job. We can help people be housed, stay housed, and have shorter stays in the hospital. Um, this is really kind of um, walking alongside people in recovery when we're doing this kind of work. Community participation. Um, this is something that is really becoming a, uh, a, a big area of research um, in the federal government around mental health. Um, Mark Salzer, who you see up on the citation, is, is leading a lot of this work. He's in, in Pennsylvania. He does a lot of work at the VA and the VA system as well. Um, and he has found that when people are engaged in their communities, it is a predictor um, of, of recovery, that people feel more hopeful, they have better quality of life and a sense of meaning. Um, obviously, depending upon how old you are, um, opportunities need to be different. But what's really sort of underneath this whole idea of citizen participation is this idea of loneliness. 
Um, and that loneliness, we know even for someone without a mental illness drives a lot of our health outcomes. It does so in particular for people with mental illness and substance use um, issues. And that um, engaging in our communities, um, becoming an, en an engaged citizen depletes, um, diminishes loneliness. Um, so really interesting work that is beginning to develop a strong evidence base. Again, why peer support is so important, right? Is it can, it can eliminate loneliness for people. It can change their lives. All right, I, last few minutes here. Um, critical importance of integrated services. Um, we know that um, there is so much research that shows when we integrate all of these evidence-based practices across different settings that we see that people have better um, experiences in their communities as residences, residents, um, better housing, better employment outcomes. They experience less victimization. They have better life satisfaction. And we either eliminate or help minimize adverse effects of, of their mental illnesses and their substance use disorders, right? It's really compelling evidence. You know, when someone lives, as we talked in the beginning, you know, on one side of Los Angeles and they have to go to the food bank there and then they have to travel by public transportation for two hours across uh, the city to get, you know, medication, right? That doesn't happen. And that's why what we learned in COVID is when some people were being able to receive uh, telehealth is that attendance rates and participation rates went up. Um, and we really believe that has a lot to do with uh, telehealth was one way of integrating it in that person's um, residence, wherever they were in their environment. Obviously, that didn't get to happen for people who are homeless, but we know that um, integrated services make a huge difference for folks. So I'm going to stop here and we're going to talk about evidence-based practices and do a case study next week. And I wanna leave you with this image of, of this woman. Her name is Judy Chamberlain. Some of you may know her. Um, I had the privilege of working with her for many years. Um, she was a woman who uh, was hospitalized against her will. Um, she had her child taken away from her. She had to fight her way out of a hospital and she became kind of a, a fire breathing consumer advocate for the rights of people with serious mental illness was arrested multiple times, thrown back in the hospital multiple times. And she felt very strongly um, and she promoted this idea that people with mental illnesses deserve the same level of services that people without mental illnesses deserve. So evidence-based practices, right? We all, I mean, the, the COVID vaccine is a great example. We all wanted to know that it worked. And that's what evidence-based practices are, right? We want to know that it works, and we we want to we want to be sure um, that it's going to meet our needs. And so that's why we care about them. All right. Well, thank you so much, everyone. I know I threw a lot of content at you, and I appreciate your your listening and your comments. And we'll see you next Friday. <laughs>